Good morning, Brickview. Morning. Uh, my name is Haley, and I'm excited to go through announcements this morning. So Easter is coming up in two weeks. That's one of my favorite times of the year. So April 9th, we will have two identical services, 9 a.m., 11 a.m. We will have our kids' programs next year, or next door, not next, probably next year too. Um, and if you forget, that's okay. You'll just be early for the 11 o'clock, all right? So 9 and 11, hope to see you there. And invite some friends, invite some coworkers, invite your family. This is a great time for them to see Brookview and to learn more about Jesus. So, okay, next one. So we have our communication card. This is online, and this is an opportunity for us to hear from you, whether you have comments, compliments, you want to learn more, you want to get signed up for something, check it out. It's on your phone. This is the only time you can pull out your phone right now is to do that um, or take notes. Um, but we want to hear from you, so go ahead and fill that out. And that is all I have. So thank you for journeying with me this morning. It's been way too long since you've been up here giving announcements. That was awesome. Man. Uh, well, to start today, I want to share with you guys a bit of news. Um, Trevor is away on a youth retreat with my oldest daughter as a leader and my youngest daughter as a student, and they were tubing yesterday, and apparently my youngest face-planted, and she looks like something out of a scene from Rocky. Um, but we're going to love her anyway. <laughs> so with Trevor not being here, he had an announcement for you. And um, he, since he's not here, he made a video. So let's roll it. Hey, Brookview. It's Trevor. I am at my house right now. But when you're watching this, I will be at a high school retreat with our high schoolers and a couple of other churches out in Leavenworth. So I am not there in person. Um, today, but I did want to give you guys a little bit of a life update. Um, some of you guys know, most of you guys know, I am getting married in June, which is coming up real fast. And so I'm super excited for that. And my life, this next season, there's a lot of change happening. And um, one of those is kind of what am I going to do for a job? Um, and so I went to school at, at GCU to get my teaching degree. And so I plan on getting back in the classroom and teaching. And I'm really excited and looking forward to it. But what that means is, is that I will be kind of stepping back from my role as a staff member here at Brookview. And so, um, which is, that's kind of crazy to think about because I've been here since October 2020 doing the village. Um, and now it's the end of March in 2023. And what a season that is for kind of all of us. And so I have just, I am so grateful and so thankful um, 
for God to put it on my heart to move from Arizona back to Washington to really connect with you guys and connect with him. And you guys have been family to me. You guys have supported and loved me so well. And it has been awesome for me to be able to pour out and invest into this church. Um, and it has, I, that's just been such a gift to me. So a little bit of mixed emotions in leaving um, but I'm also really excited for what uh, the future has for me and kind of what God has for me in teaching and in marriage and in living situation and, and all of that. So I wanted to give you guys the heads up and um, just tell you, I think, like, thank you so much. And um, I can't wait to see. I will still be at Brookview. My role just will be a little different. And so you will still see me around. I will still be here. And um yeah, so I'm excited to kind of continue living life with you guys just in a, in a new and different way. So thank you so much, and I will see you guys soon. Sometimes, sometimes I do need a new battery. Uh, so to clarify... Um, Trevor's planning to start subbing with the Edmonds School District. Um, and so they're processing his paperwork and credentials. And when that clears, he's planning to start subbing right away for the rest of this school. Clear as a bell. Oh, man. So Trevor, right now, uh, he's got his paperwork and credentials and all that is being processed by the Edmonds School District. He's planning to sub as soon as possible, um, as soon as that clears. And then his hope is to get a full-time job, you know, teaching in a classroom next fall. Uh, but he could be subbing, when he told us this a couple weeks ago, he said he could be subbing as early as, like, this coming week. Um, or it might take a few more weeks. So Trevor is on staff with us through the end of March, and then as he alluded to after that, he plans to continue attending Brookview um, because this has really become family for him in a lot of ways. And then once he's married, they plan to attend Brookview together, at least for the initial season. And so he intends to stay involved in some capacity with the youth, but obviously that'll, that'll change. And I just, I just want to say, you know, some of you are like, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great, I hate that guy. <laughs> no, 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 uh, no. Trevor, I you know, love you, bro. And, and I, I just wanna say that Trevor has been such a gift from God this past season. Um, he, as he said, he moved here in October 2020. We're like right in the midst of, of COVID. He moved here from Arizona on a whisper from the Holy Spirit. And when he got here, 
the Spirit just moved around him and through him like crazy. And with Jen's help, he pioneered a micro school that met here for an entire school year amidst the COVID shutdown. And, and it was an enormous blessing to so many kids and so many families. And then he was able to stay on after that and pioneer a, bunch of, a whole bunch of other stuff. He pioneered um, youth ministry, and we now have a separate middle school and high school ministry with lots of volunteers on both teams. He helped us start a whole slew of stuff. We had to start a, you know, a ministries for all kinds of things, and he, he, he did that. Um, and so Trevor has been a huge part of like the relaunch because when COVID hit, just about everything in church shut down. And when the world began to open up, it's not like all those people and all those leaders came, came back and said, hey, I'm here to just do what I was doing before. We had to like start from scratch. And in some ways we had to do things very differently. We just weren't gonna do exactly what we did before. So Trevor was a huge part of getting this whole thing rolling. And now it's rolling. But it's also time for him to go do what he went to college to do, to teach math. And, um, and he's planning to get rolling on that ASAP. So I'll, I will just say, I'm, I'm grateful for the gift that he's been, and I absolutely 100% fully support his next move. And so I just wanna, we guys, I just wanna pause and just kinda thank, he's, it's crazy that we ended up with this guy on, with us for, for three-ish years, you guys. So let's just pray. God. I thank you for Trevor. I thank you for his fiance Cherry, their life together. And God, I just pray you'd pour your blessing out on him. Um, I pray that you would continue, continue to just fill him with wisdom for how to follow you, how to be in community, how to impact the world. And we know that he can be as big of an impact for Jesus in a classroom as he is here doing youth stuff. So God, would you just fill him with your spirit and use him to make our world more beautiful. In Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last several weeks, we've been in a conversation about becoming a creative minority. And the idea is, over the last few decades, the cultural ground beneath our feet has shifted, and we are now in a full-on post-Christian moment, meaning many dominant values, many of the dominant values of our society, they run counter to the way of Jesus. Now, to be fair... This is not a completely new problem, right? I mean, you think about through the history of our country, there's slavery, subjugation of indigenous peoples, racism, the oppression of women, and on and on. There have always been societal values that run counter to the way of Jesus. While there are many beautiful things about our country that I love, like, and I do, I, I feel profoundly fortunate to live where I live. And as a society, um, we have always been a mixed bag of values, some very good and very Christ-like, and then some not at all. But until recently, and this is where the big shift has happened, much of our society was very warm toward Christianity. Our culture held the church and the Bible and Christian morals in, in high regard. But in the past two decades, or really especially the last five years or so, there is this rising hostility toward Christianity. And we're, we're not just viewed by people who don't follow Christ as like a little bit different. By many, we're viewed as, as dangerous. Um, so in, in the COVID season, uh, Brooklyn had basketball practice. My 16-year-old had basketball practices down in Ballard. And so on summer days, Jen and I would drop her off at practice, and then we'd go for a walk through the Ballard neighborhoods. 
And it, it, here's what we noticed. It felt like a new religion was forming in Ballard uh, because about half of the houses all had a creed that was posted in their yard, and it looked, it looked like this. And it, I mean, these were everywhere. So we believe, I mean, that's a statement of faith, right? We believe black lives matter, no human is illegal, love is love, women's rights are human rights, science is real, water is life, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And this set of ideologies in some ways has become kind of the pseudo-religion of our society. And so we, as we saw this in like yard after yard, I felt what many of you feel a lot, a lot of the time, which is, Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. Um, and so the question that we've been wrestling with these past weeks is, like, how do we follow Jesus in an increasingly hostile world? And to think through that, we've, we've been camping in the book of Daniel because it's a book about living as foreigners and exiles. Like many Christians in many places at many times have been at odds with the culture. That's not new. And, and Daniel has served as kind of a guide for how, t- you know, believers to, to navigate that well. This week I, I came across a fantastic, you guys, I love the Bible Project. And I came across a fantastic Bible project video that was like, huh, I wish I would have had that at the beginning of the series. Uh, but it's, it's on exile. And um, for those of you that don't know, the Bible project is a collection of free online resources. And it's, it's scholars and artists working together to help ordinary people understand the Bible. And uh, I think the resources are so good and they're so vast um, so BibleProject.com, if you're ever wanting to check that out, don't do it right now. As Haley said, you put that phone away. Uh, but here's, here's the video called The Way of Exile, and just how relevant is this? In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust and take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect. But instead, they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being. But in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually they aren't. 
As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. Right. This is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice, but they do it non-violently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles, but don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime, but then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile, waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. Man, the Bible project is good. I do have to say, I don't usually picture Jesus with a receding hairline. Uh, but what a fantastic like explanation of exactly what we've been talking about. So the third way, like being a creative minority. So not conforming to the culture, but not isolating either. Engaging with the world 
with love and compassion and seeking its peace and prosperity, as Jeremiah said. Now, the, the book of Daniel, um, as I said a few weeks ago, is split right down the middle. So it's 12 chapters long. The first six chapters are stories about life in exile, starting with Daniel as a teenager all the way up to him being like 70, 80 years old. But then what happens is in chapter 7, the book shifts gears and completely changes in tone. And the second half is all about life after exile through prophecy. So, so it's, it's a signpost over the horizon to the future. And the second half of Daniel is, is kind of tricky because it's written in a literary genre that is strange to us. Uh, this literary style is, was something that was common in Daniel's day, but it's not common in ours, and it's what scholars call apocalyptic literature. And today, you guys, we are diving into this. Are you ready? I got one woo, and that was it. Let's go. This is going to be awesome. Okay, now, here's the thing. Uh, apocalyptic literature employs, like, symbolism, imagery, numbers, um, and metaphors to represent spiritual, political, and social truth. And so in this kind of literature, we end up with these like wild figures, these beasts and animals with lots of eyes or horns or wings or whatever. And so before we get into this, so that none of you have nightmares, l let me explain how apocalyptic literature works. Here's, a, here's just a good rule of thumb. Everything in apocalyptic literature is real, but not everything is literal. So now I taught on this before, I taught on this a couple years ago, just apocalyptic literature in general, but let me explain. The best modern equivalent for us, because we don't really have a literary one, is the genre of political cartoon. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's look at a you know, more recent example of a political cartoon. So, okay. So on, on the right, you have what kind of character? And what does Uncle Sam represent? We seem to be confused about this. <laughs> what does Uncle Sam represent? America. America. Okay, and, and so, and then on the left, what do we have there? Yeah, and, and, and what does that represent? Okay, and so what are the characters doing? Having a tug of war. Okay, so in looking at this image, most of us get some sort of an idea of what this is representing. The U.S. and China are engaged in some kind of tension. Could be economic, technological, environmental, could be, could be anything. But, but similarly, apocalyptic literature is pictures that are used to describe reality. Again, everything is real, but not everything is literal. So let me, let me try painting a picture with just words. Now I'm going to try to do this with just words. So maybe close your eyes for a second and try to visualize this. I imagine a m very muscular eagle wearing a baseball hat with the American flag on it. <laughs> and the eagle is, is arm wrestling a smaller but very scrappy little beaver. And the beaver is wearing a ski hat with a red maple leaf on it. You guys got the picture? Now, they're arm wrestling by leaning their arms on a big steel pipe, and out of the pipe come $100 bills just spewing out, and as the bills land on the ground, they turn into oozing puddles of oil. Okay, open your eyes. The eagle represents what? 
America. The beaver. Ah, our little brothers to the north. And, and they're wrestling over what? Pipeline, money, oil, right? And so this may very well represent something real, but it's not literal. There isn't literally an eagle wrestling with a beaver somewhere. Some of you are like, dang it, I'd love to see that. Like, that'd be amazing. But this is, this is how apocalyptic literature works. Okay, so you guys ready to dive in? Here we go. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Now, warning, this is about to get weird, okay? But remember, it's, it's a dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. The three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So everybody got that? Yeah. Best sermon ever. Right? Let's, let's pray to close. <laughs> yeah, so that might need a little explanation. Uh, so, okay, the first thing that Daniel sees is four winds churning up the sea. Uh, these Israelites, uh, keep in mind, were not like the Vikings that came like 1,400 years later. They were a landlocked people that were terrified of the sea. To them, the sea represented chaos and anarchy and evil, okay? And four beasts came out of the sea. So four empires arise out of chaos and anarchy. Now, these beasts are not animals. They're animal-like, but they are like mutant beasts. They're scary and violent, and the imagery is intended to evoke fear. And each beast, as we'll see, represents an empire, and so there's been a lot of discussion for many years about these empires, much debate in academia about which is which, okay? But most scholars identify the empires as Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And you go, well, what do you think? I'm going to leave it up to the scholars. This is above my pay grade a little bit. <laughs> but the first beast, is, is, it says, is like a lion with the wings of an eagle. And it turns out that that was like stock imagery for Babylon, 
Well, how do we know? Because at the main gate into the city of Babylon and in the palace, there were carvings of a lion with eagle's wings and the face of a man all over the place. So this image has Babylon written all over it. The second beast in Daniel's dream is like a bear with three ribs in its mouth. And so the imagery is that it, it just ate, but it's still hungry. So the, the Persian Empire then ate or conquered Babylon, and it also ate two other empires, uh, Egypt and Libya. But the idea is it's still hungry, it's still thirsty, it's still out for blood. Okay, then the third beast is both a leopard and a bird, meaning it's really fast. And so under Alexander the Great, and many of you know all about this, the Greek Empire conquered not only the Persian Empire, but most of the known world, like from Europe to India. And it did it at lightning speed in just a little over a decade. Okay? And the leopard bird beast had four heads. And scholars point out that when Alexander died, he had no heir. And so the empire was then divided into four parts based on his four generals. Okay, then you have the last beast. It has large iron teeth, and it crushes and devours. And, and then it has 10 horns that scholars will connect to the, to the 10 Roman emperors. Um, and so on one level, this is symbolic for four ancient empires, like Babylon was conquered by the Persian Empire, which was conquered by the Greek Empire, which was conquered by the Roman Empire. But on another level, and this is where we need to see, on another level, this is symbolic of all empires down through history, which is why I don't tend to get too hung up exact on which empire represents what beast and the whole thing. Because from Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome all the way to Genghis Khan and the Ottoman Empire and the British Empire and Nazi Germany, biblical prophecy often works in this, in this fashion, it, likes, it represents more than one thing. There are a lot of things in, in Scripture that represent more than one thing. It's like there's a sign pointing forward over the horizon to a literal event, but at the same time, it's, it's something that is symbolic of this ongoing pattern. It's, it's like, hey, something is going to happen in a few decades or a few hundred years, but also there's a pattern of this happening all the time. It's an ongoing theme for humanity. So beastly empires arise out of the sea and out of chaos and anarchy all the time. And, and so now, so far, you're like, this is not a very encouraging dream. <laughs> um, but it's about to change. Are you ready for change? Here we go. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, another name for God, took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn. Remember the little horn? was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. Okay, so Daniel, in the second half of the dream, he sees into the throne room of God. And God is depicted with, with white clothing and, and white hair. Um, clothed in white is just a common biblical reference 
for holiness. Uh, and white hair represents, what do you think that might represent? Yes, some of the elder people in the room said wisdom. <laughs> yes, experience and wisdom. So the imagery here with God having white hair is not that he's like elderly and decrepit. Um, it's that he's ancient and that he's wise and unlike any other in the universe. And then there's fire around his throne and there's a fire that's flowing out and there's a sea of people spread out before the throne, millions upon millions, men and women. And the beasts are eventually destroyed. Their time comes to an end. And this is, this is where the nightmare becomes a beautiful dream. Verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So Daniel sees deeper into the, the throne room of God and he sees, quote, one like a son of man. Or that Aramaic phrase can also be translated a human one or a human-like one coming on the clouds. Now all through the Old Testament, clouds are associated with an appearing of God. You know, you think of the cloud on top of Mount Sinai, right? That was God on top of Mount Sinai. Or you think about the cloud over the tabernacle. That was God over the tabernacle. Or you think about the pillar of cloud that was guiding Israel through the wilderness. Okay, that was God. The pillar was God. So we read often about God, quote, like on the clouds. So, uh, for instance, Psalm 68, 4. Sing to God. Sing in praise of his names. Extol him who what? Rides on the clouds. Psalm 104. The Lord wraps himself in light with a garment. There's white clothes imagery. He stretches out the heavens like a tent, and he lays the beams of his upper chambers on their water. He makes the clouds his chariot, there it is again, and rides on the wings of the wind. And I could go on and on and on just quoting cloud riding references, and some of you are like, that sounds dreamy. You should just keep <laughs> quoting those. Um, but you get the image. Okay, this, this figure, this son of man or the human one is kind of like a human being, but he's also an appearing of God. Does that ring a bell for anyone? The answer would be yes. Well, the answer would also be Jesus. Good, it's like a little kid in Sunday school, you know. The answer to everything is Jesus. Hey, kids, you know, what's furry and round and has nuts in its cheeks? And the kids are like, Jesus, you know. In this case, it really, it's Jesus. It really is. So th then we read about this son of man. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So unlike Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome or any other human empire, his kingdom will be established and it will go on and on forever. And if you've read the Gospels, what was Jesus' favorite title for himself? The Son of Man, right? He referred to himself as this figure again and again. And, and where did Jesus get that strange title from? From right here. Um, in fact, when Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin, like the night before he was crucified, they wanted to know, do you or do you not claim to be the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And he said, you have said so. But I say to all of you, from now on, 
you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that was very offensive. And it was the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, for Jesus. And the Sanhedrin then worked feverishly to ensure his crucifixion. All of this to say, there is, there's no doubt uh, who this Son of Man is. Now, let me read the rest of Daniel chapter 7. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four, four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High, that's us, will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. They wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High God, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. Again, many, many people think it's Rome. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. And again, many think that's a, a nod. Uh, the, the, this, what's coming next is a nod to the, the 10 Roman emperors from uh, Augustus to Constantine. The 10 horns are 10 kings who will come from this kingdom. Then after them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the, time, the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, which is like an apocalyptic way of saying a season. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom the kingdom of Jesus, will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. And now check out the closing line. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. <laughs> this is so good. This is like, hey, how did you sleep last night, Daniel? He's like, you, you don't want to know. <laughs> right, so, but here's, the, here's a, like an obvious question. Why is Daniel deeply troubled? I mean, the first part of the dream, it, it's, it is nightmarish. But, but you guys, right, the last part of the dream is fantastic. It's great. It's about this son of man. And if you're Daniel, this, this coming person who'd be God on earth inaugurating God's kingdom, a kingdom that would eventually overcome all beastly empires, that would be awesome. The idea that these empires are all eventually going to fade and the kingdom of God will expand and it will go on and last forever. That would have to be exciting to Daniel. That's good news, right? So why is he troubled? Well, we're not told, but I wonder if it's because he wants this to happen in his lifetime. He, he doesn't want hundreds and thousands of years to have to go by first. 
He's troubled because he's waking up to the reality of how long this is all actually going to take. It will come one day, but it will come way down the line, way in the future. In the meantime, empires will rise and they will fall. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and many, many more. And there will be seasons of chaos and violence and upheaval. And there is so much injustice that's coming and is on the horizon before this all goes down. And yet, This is a dream about what it means to live in the shadow of empire. And for thousands of years, the the people of God, whether Jewish Jews at first or Christians later on, have navigated this. They've navigated it inside various empires. They've had to figure out how to love and, and serve God in the midst of empires that don't. Now, when I say empire, let me define what I mean. There are sometimes... Um, the people who are into this stuff will give kind of four main markers of what an empire is. Um, And here they are. There's military, okay, economic, political, and ideology. So let me just run through this. An empire not only has a military, an empire has the best and most powerful military in the world. It has better soldiers, it has better weapons, better funding, better strategy, better training, and it has the trust of its people that its military will keep it safe. Two, economic. An empire is an engine that drives the world economy. Okay, number three, political. An empire has a way of organizing the power structures that run society. So an empire has trust not only in its leader, but, you know, it's emperor or or president or prime minister, but it has trust in its form of government. The belief of the people is that, okay, our government, our system, our way of doing this is the best way ever. And then finally, number four is ideology. An empire has a narrative, a story that it tells about the good life. So people come to believe this is the best way to live. Like, this is our way and our way is, is the best. And that, that vision for life is then propagated aggressively all through the culture. So in empire, there's formidable pressure to conform to the mainstream vision. So, okay, here's an empire. What does this have to do with you and me? Some of you are just like, I, I just came here because I, I want God to give me a date. I'm single, I don't want to be. Where are you going with this? Um, what does this have to do with you and me? Well, let me, I just want to give you a couple thoughts on our current situation. And the first thought is this. America is an empire. And if you say, no, no, it's not. Well, I mean, just run it through the grid we just looked at. America has the largest military in the world. Check. The amount of money we spend on national defense is, is insane. Economic. The U.S. is a massive force on the world, like the global economy, okay, check. Political, the U.S. holds an extraordinary political power both here and abroad, right? And then how about ideology? Well, America started as an idea that has morphed into an ideology. And so let's look at the famous line from the Declaration of Independence. Okay, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is the, this is the prototype 
that led to, you know, what we would call the American dream, right? July 4th, 1776. Every one of you has a right to chase after a better life. And of course, at this point, slavery was still enforced by law. Native Americans would be driven from their lands. The 19th Amendment allowing women to vote wouldn't be ratified until 1920. So the, the all men appears to many to be like all white males. Uh, and so while we still have a, far, like a long ways to go, we, have, we really have come far. Um, as MLK famously said, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. But the seed of the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness has grown. It has morphed into an ideology, a society, and really, these days, an emerging religion. Our, our empire is embracing a powerful ideology that you could just call individualism. Um, Mark Sayers is just a brilliant guy, theologian, like cultural critic, and he identifies seven widely held beliefs in Western culture. So this is not just in the US, but in, in uh, Europe and, and so on. But he sees, just, I'm gonna run through, I'm just gonna read these seven things and see how many of these feel a little bit familiar to you. Number one, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Two, traditions, re religions, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, and self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Three, the world will inevitably improve. As the scope of individual freedom grows, technology will motor this progress toward utopia. Four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. <laughs> Ironic, right? <laughs> Number five, humans are inherently good. Number six, large-scale structures and institutions, okay, like the church, are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And seven, forms of external authority, so God or the Bible or Christian morals or the church, are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. The best way to the good life is to be true to yourself, okay? Not to your spouse, not to your family, not to your community, not to the people that are counting on you, and certainly not to God. Now, does, does any of this feel familiar to you? Does to me. Whether I'm overhearing people like chatting at a coffee shop or I'm walking through the neighborhoods of Ballard. And Sayers goes on, he writes this, he says, these beliefs have not so much been argued as assumed. They're, they're not enforced, rather they are imbibed, which means they, we drink them in. We do not receive them as intellectual propaganda to be obeyed. Instead, they are communicated to us at an almost subconscious level. This new cultural mood becomes all the more powerful as the good is reduced to mere individual happiness. 
We can no longer see beyond ourselves to learn from history or be concerned about the future. The result is an amnesia about everything except the immediate, the instant, the now, and the me. The future is not left to God, but rather a kind of implicit, fuzzy faith that things will simply move to get better somehow. This is the functional religion of our secular society. This is the prevailing ideology of our empire. Now, all of this, all of this simply to say, America is an empire. So here's a second thought. Empires are a mixed bag of good and bad. So please hear me. You guys, there is so much to love about our country. So much. And for those of you that have been other places and you've experienced something else, for me, I've been to Russia, okay? I've been to the Ukraine. I've been, I've been to Haiti several times. And, and there, is, there is so much to love about America, being American. There's, so, there's good and there's bad in every empire. Some empires have more good than others. And America obviously has its issues. But it, you guys, it's a thousand times better than Nazi Germany, right? Or Stalin's Russia or North Korea, in fact, America, like Babylon, has done a lot of good in the world, a lot of good. Babylon was like, and you think Babylon was like the zenith of human civilization in its day. The Roman Empire was incredible in many regards, moved the world forward in some really big ways. So as citizens of both America and the kingdom of God, the deal is we, we, we're, we're all walking around with dual citizenship. And our job is to celebrate all that's good, beautiful, and true in America and to thank God for it and to pray and work for more of it while simultaneously living as witnesses to an even better reality, the kingdom of God, which is sometimes at odds with America and its way of life. One more thought about all this, and it's pretty simple. Empires come and go. I mean, in Daniel's dream, no human empire will last forever. But honestly, we don't need Daniel's dream to figure that out. Like, you just look at history. Empires come and they go. They come and they go. Yes, that's true of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, but it's also true of, like, the British Empire, which was a big deal. There's a reason we all speak English, right? And, and the French Empire and, and, and Nazi Germany and what was recently the Soviet Union, both Daniel and history say that all empires hit a zenith and then they lapse into decline, right? And that, that doesn't need to be something that any of us are scared of. Like if you're British and you live in England, it's still a really nice place to live, right, in many ways. But England is not the empire that it once was. Uh, Rome, Italy, same thing, great pasta. <laughs> but not the same level of world influence that it had 2,000 years ago. Is it a nice place to live still? Yeah. So we are a part of an empire and we are a part of a kingdom. The empire will not last forever. The kingdom will. Now, please, again, please don't misunderstand me. When I say that all empires come and go and rise and fall, I am not by any means saying, so, so we should just all throw our hands up and because it's all going to hell, so let's just relax, watch Netflix, and, and worship Jesus a lot at church. That's not at all what I'm saying. Like going back to the prophet Jeremiah when he wrote to the Babylonian exiles, there is very important work to do 
in this empire where we live. And we do that work as a creative minority. Again, Jeremiah writes, let me just read this again because I think it's beautiful. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So we are to engage our culture with everything that we have. We are to pray for it. We are, we are to seek its shalom, right? Its wholeness and goodness, and we are to work for it. And, um, and I, just, I just wanna think a little bit with you guys about how creative this process is. It really is, because we can do this in so many awesome ways. Um, we don't do this by force. We do it by love, we do it by grace, we do it by compassion, and we do it through creativity as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. So here's, here's a framework that I got from a guy that I, I love, John Mark Comer, for what this creativity can look like. And he got it from an Anabaptist preacher. By the way, all, all of us that are pastors, we're all stealing stuff from each other all the time. No one steals anything from me. It's, it's, maybe somebody does. It's, it's on the interweb now. But. So how, how, can, how can we be a creative minority? Okay, emphasis on the word creative. Um, as artists as citizens and as philosophers. Some of you go, I'm not any of those things. Wait, okay, you are. First, as artists. Artists do two things. They critique the bad in society, but the, but the best artists do more than just critique the bad. They also call out the good. And, and we need to be artists. And when I say that, I don't just mean like we need to be painters or poets or musicians. I mean like... I mean like the broad term, like, because in a way, all work is artistic. Teaching second grade is an art, right? Raising children is an art. Running a business, okay? Teaching the Bible. What I do is art, yes? You bet it is. Come on. So good artists help people imagine a better future. They help people see not only what is, they help people see what could be. They help people dream of, imagine, and work toward a better future. You can all do that, and you've all done that in some context. We need artists. We need them in homes, in classrooms, in life groups, in offices. We need them everywhere. Okay, secondly, we need to be good citizens. And again, we think about, we have dual citizenship. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, but we're also citizens of America or citizens of Briar or Snohomish or Edmonds or Muckleteal or wherever you hail from. But we need to tie our peace to the peace of our community to pray for and work for the shalom of that community. Like your workplace or your soccer team or your knitting club or your kid's Girl Scout troop, it should be a better place. It should look more like heaven because you're there and you're engaging in it. And we do this not by withdrawing from the culture because there's aspects of it that are opposed to who we are as followers of Jesus. We do it by engaging it. Okay, and then third, as philosophers. The word, the word philo means just love. 
And, um, and a philosopher is simply one who loves knowledge or wisdom. And you guys, we need philosophers now more than ever because our culture is desperately lacking wisdom. You've all seen it. There are so many people who are educated and they're smart and they are successful in the public sphere and in private, they're a wreck because they don't know how to parent a three-year-old or they don't know how to make a marriage work or they don't know how to be involved in meaningful community in an authentic way. They don't know how to manage money or manage sexual drive. They, they don't know how to handle loss or un, uncertainty, right? In our culture, we are struggling. People are struggling. We need wisdom now more than ever. We need philosophers to discern what is good, beautiful, and true and to bring the wisdom of God to bear on the world. We, we, need, we need philosophers in business, like those of you that are, that are in the marketplace world. We need you to bring the wisdom of God to bear in a world that's driven by capitalism and consumerism. We need philosophers to work inside of capitalism and consumerism to chart a path forward, not just to make more money, but, but to make a better world. We need philosophers in technology, thinking through not just what technology can do for us, but what technology is doing to us. We need philosophers in parenting. We need men and women who discern how to unfold a child into maturity and, and help them learn to thrive in God's world. My point is we need philosophers in every aspect of society. So as, as artists, right, as citizens and philosophers, this is what it looks like to be a creative minority in our society. And when I, when I think about this kind of creative impact, I just naturally go back to MLK. And some of you are like, man, you, you talk about MLK a lot. I do. I really, I, I'm into the dude. <laughs> He's done some extraordinary things along with other people. Extraordinary. But when you think of MLK and then you think of these things, he, he, was, he was all of these, right? He was an artist. His I Have a Dream speech and many other speeches was a masterpiece. It was poetry. And it enabled us to envision a better world marked by racial justice. And he was a citizen of America. And he engaged in the nation that he loved. He was a philosopher. He was a lover of wisdom. He was also very human, right? He was a man, if you read about him, had all sorts of problems and all sorts of issues. But he was a lover of wisdom, and he brought wisdom to us all. And we need more of that. We need as much of that as we can get from every corner of our, of our society. And you don't need to be like a preacher or a national figure to do this kind of work. How do you do it? You do it by being you in the places that you live every single day, in real life. Because the invitation from Jesus is always to be with Jesus, to, to become like Jesus, and then to go and do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And so he's calling us to be a creative minority in this world that he loves. And that means bringing inspiration to our world as artists. It means engaging our society as citizens. It means bringing wisdom where it's needed because our world is desperate for wise philosophers. And you know, there's, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things I can live for. Our world says, 
<laughs> you do you, boo. Whatever makes you happy. But is the whatever makes you happy life working in our world? I, I see more anxiety and depression and fear and anger than ever. I, I see very lonely people that can't find community. You know, the standard of living and individual freedom right now are higher than ever. And yet, people are falling apart on the inside. And, and so what is God doing about it? He's doing what he's done for thousands of years. He's using a creative minority to inject beauty into the world. And you and I are invited to follow him, and to learn from him, and to be his representatives in this world. You guys, I can't think of a, of a more exciting thing that I would rather do. Father in heaven, I think about the extraordinary amount of creativity in this room and the creative potential that just in this room alone for those of us to, to learn to be with you, Jesus, to learn to become like you, and then to go and, and represent you in a way that's authentic to the world all around us. And that's happening, and so many are doing that, but I also believe we can do so much more. And so I pray that you would just help us to, to tell ourselves to you and to look more and more like you as we do, and then to go into the places where we live every single day and make them look more like heaven. Would you help us bring heaven to earth? What, a, what an amazing calling, amazing calling. God, use us. Use us as individuals and use us collectively as a group as well. Would you bless the world? Would you bless us? And would you, would you bring those two things together?